0: Let me pray. Jesus, <clears throat> I just thank you. I thank you that you're, you're in us by your Spirit, and you're forming us to look a lot like you, and you love us. I thank you so much for just the, the reality that you have um, recaptured who we really are to be in, and we want to live in the grain of God's reality. We want our hearts now to think about what you say about who we are. And I I just, I want to pray that we would really sense this awe about you and how you form us and how you've made us in your image and you're remaking us into the image of your son. Like I pray that would just feel like we just saw angels, like we would just go, whoa, like that's, that's incredible. And I just, I pray for work of your spirit. I pray as we seek to navigate these elephants in the rooms of the people we love in our culture, as we seek to make sense of how things are shifting and going the way they are. I just, I pray for your presence. I pray for your grace. I pray we'd have your heart and so I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give me the gift or manifest the gift of teaching through me so that this sermon wouldn't come in at all, James. It would be of the Holy Spirit. So I pray for that. And yeah, equip us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, to set up where we're going this morning on the topic of identity creation's purpose, and brokenness. Uh, by the way, this sermon will help you answer the question. The, with, with, th- this will be more helpful in answering the question, is homosexuality a sin than next week's sermon on same-sex relationships? So it's a very important sermon. So very important, just like last week on sexuality in the way of Jesus. From a Christian worldview, and, and how you're gonna respond in truth and love and how do we navigate the elephants in the room if we really wanna help people come to a relationship with Jesus, how do we, how do we navigate the, the things that are keeping us from doing that? That's what this sermon series is doing. This sermon will help you the most. So if, you're, if you wanna take notes, do that, okay? Um, but here's a here's conversation I'm sure you've had in similar moments and this is a true story. So Andy, while in Bible college, while married, He's raised on the mission field, comes to a place where uh, he leaves his wife. And while in school, he comes out to all his friends and his family. And there's a professor he has that that he's really loved and made an impact on his life. And here's the conversation. He, He says this, this is who I am. For years, I prayed for God to take this away and change me. Nothing happened and nothing will, I've been denying this far too long. I never chose this. Like, why would God make me this way and then not allow me to be who I am? I mean, I just, I have to be honest and authentic and accept the truth that I'm gay, this is who I am. Okay, how many of you have been in similar conversations? Moments like that one. Next week, I want to lean in to a Jesus response with some compassionate advice. But for the purpose of this sermon and how we're trying to build this series, I want us to look at the beliefs underneath Andy's words namely for him being gay was no longer what he's attracted to what he desires or what he does it was who he is being gay was at the core of his essence the core of his being so why does that matter why do we listen for that? Well, if we have a flawed view of who we are, we'll have a flawed view of what we're for. And not only that, we'll have a flawed view of personal ethic. And if we have a flawed personal ethic, we'll just have a flawed view of who we are. So, so um, Christopher Wan, he's the professor at Moody Bible Institute who himself has same-sex attraction and is living in the way of scripture. Writing from his past, He points out, when I came out in my early 20s, I believed the only way to live authentically as a gay man was to fully embrace that identity. Being gay was who I was. As a matter of fact, my whole life was gay. Almost everyone I knew was gay, all my friends were gay, my neighbors were gay, my apartment manager was gay, the barber was gay, my house cleaner was gay, my bookkeeper was gay, my car salesman was gay, I worked at a gay gym and bought groceries at a gay Kroger. Sexuality was the core of who I was and everything and everyone affirmed that. And if I'm gay truly means that's who I am, it would be utterly cruel for someone to condemn me for simply being myself. This is an important topic. In a culture... That says the real you is whoever you feel or are attracted to or whoever you decide you are, whatever your pattern of desires are if that's the true you okay marry that with a philosophy of the atheistic evolutional view on the body where your body's just a lump for you to like a canvas for you to just do whatever you'd like with it to to, to, to express your true self and you will put identity in a place it was never meant to be. Jonathan Grant put it really well in his book about our culture. He says, "Modern authentic- this will be on the screen, modern authenticity encourages us to create our own beliefs and morality, the only rule being that they must resonate with who we feel we really are. The worst thing we can do is to conform to some moral code that is imposed on us from outside by society, our parents, the church, and whoever else. It is deemed to be self-evident that any such imposition would undermine our unique identity. The authentic self believes that personal meaning must be found within ourselves. That's massive, that sentence or must resonate with our one-of-a-kind personality. For those younger than 25, this is the oxygen you breathe. It's, this is the only reality you've ever known. So is our attractions who we are? What does the Bible teach? Well, for followers of Jesus, which is, remember, you just have to hear me this is not like a public lecture. I'm talking to the Shore Church. So my job in Ephesians is to equip the saints for works of ministry. So I'm, as a pastor, equipping you to be God's love, be his words of truth, be him to those in around us. So I'm not trying, this is, this is me equipping, okay? So you're, just so we keep getting the posture of this pastor's heart, okay? Um, for followers of Jesus, the only way to make sense, and this is, so you need to write this down. The only way to make sense of who we are is to make sense of what we're for and whose we are. Identity for the follower of Jesus begins with whose you are and, and what the Bible teaches you're for, okay? So that's what we wanna find. So we wanna, we wanna find out where does identity begin? So the rest of our time, here's where we're going, okay? And teens, Okay? This is your jam. If you can explain these three to your parents, they will give you 10 bucks today. Okay, I'm so sorry, parents, but this is gonna help. Identity, here's our first point. Number one, where identity begins, being made in the image of God. This is our first point. Where does identity begin? That's a massively important answer. And you'll see why as we go. Number two, how have we for centuries understood desires and attractions or disordered desires? How have we understood them biblically? Where does this brokenness come from? So that's the fall. And then third, what is our true identity? As followers of Jesus, do we have a redemptive identity? So that's what we're gonna look at. Those are the three points for the whole sermon. So we we have to begin with the first four words of the Bible, okay, which are, in the beginning, God. That's where you begin. And here's why you begin there. Only God comprehensively, fully, wholly, and exhaustively understands us because he made us. Which implies we're born into a world that by its very nature is the celebration of another. We are born into a world not owned by us. We're born into a world where there's another higher authority, we are born into a world as special creatures, as, as image bearers, and we'll get to that. But, but you can't get up in the morning without bumping into God. So let's make sense by actually looking at the Bible. So here's where we're gonna start, Genesis one, this is gonna be our main text, 26 to 27. This is the creation account about your creaturely identity. So this is the image of God, okay? So this is your first point. You guys ready? Let's read it. It'll be on the screen, but you can have it in your Bible too. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God. He created him. Male and female, he created them. This is your creaturely identity. Genesis 5:1 says, When God, when God created man, which By the way, he does this different than the way he creates any other of his creation. He breathes his own soul, makes him with his hands. He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and he named them man, mankind, when they were created. So here's what this means. We were made as relational beings, in the image of a relational God, our image for relationship, God reflecting like relationship with God and with others. So we'll get to the second point, but although tainted by sin, all human qualities, all human qualities, not just some are reflections of God's attributes. The Old Testament scholar Bruce Walkie provides this rationale by stating that we are made like God so that God can communicate Himself to people. So this is your creaturely identity. This is, this is, this is your dignity and value. This as a being. This is your purpose. You exist to glorify God, to magnify him to the world. That's massive, that's so significant. Isaiah 43, seven says, everyone who's called by my name who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So worship is glorifying God, magnifying him to the world by your enjoyment of him and, and your relationship, your praise of him is how we live, worship is how we live lives every day. Okay, so we worship what we live for, right? You've heard this before, everyone's worshiping all the time. Human beings reflect whatever is most worthy of attention and like a mirror, we reflect what we love, okay? Think of yourself like a big, you know, uh, like a human billboard out there. You're always advertising what you find to be most valuable Worthy, You get in any relationship, any, you're always worshiping. Okay, before sin, this relational reflecting into the world was always the beauty, the care, the love, the friendship of God. Jen Wilkin writes, everything we say or do will illuminate or obscure the character of God. Sanctification, which is becoming more like Jesus, is the process of joyfully growing luminous. So let let me put this a few ways. When God wanted to make something glorious, to be a lot like him, he made you. So that more of him could be seen. What this means for Christians is our way of being in the world needs to echo the ways of God. You have a full new purpose now. Your main purpose is to echo God himself. We're called to love as he loves. We're called to rule as he rules. So practically, the next time you go and tidy up, you know, the playroom or clean the dishes or give a presentation at work or, you know, diagnose a heart condition or change a tire or bring food to someone you love, remember, remember this. Imagine the greater reality you are imaging in your work, Like when you're landscaping, you are bringing order to the world as God brought order. This is your creaturely identity. You are taking part of the restoration of all things. So your value is not in your contribution to society. Your value is in whose image you shine. That's where your value lies. Additionally, Although race, gender, nationality, and sexuality are important, they're they're gloriously a part of how God's knit you in your mother's womb. We reject the modern practice of elevating these part identities into whole identities. What I'm saying is sure nothing than the whole glory of the restored image of God in humankind will do. So let me say it this way, identity for every human being is not earned or discovered, but is received. It's who you are. So let me, let me say it this way, when a Christian mocks, now I have never seen this. Just you know, I have never met a Christian ever. I was trying to press myself, but ever. In my 15 years of being a pastor, I've never seen a believer mock or demonize someone for being gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. I've never never met them, but for those who do, you know, like those, those hate groups who mask themselves as a church, may it be said those hurtful actions and attitudes fail to honor the dignity and value of of others created in the image of God. Okay, now as we transition to talk about our brokenness and the fall, let me say it's essential we remember the imprint of sin leads to deformation, but it's still not who you are. In the words of one, every sinful person is still a person created in God's image. Regardless of anyone's age, sex, race, Regardless of whether one is in submission to God or not, and regardless of whether a person experiences same sex attraction or identifies as gay or lesbian, everyone is created in the Imago day. it's never erased. Okay, so I know I, know I said I wouldn't give advice till next week, but but I will say don't and don't miss this. I, I don't think it's helpful or even beneficial to our atheist gay friends to compare same-sex relationships with other sins, like jealousy or pride or gossip. I don't think it's helpful or beneficial to even use words like struggle. For one, they don't believe same-sex relationships are sinful. But more, when you say homosexuality is a sin because our gay friend believes being gay is who they are, they hear you saying that the core of their being, their entire person is sin. And if you start with the wrong identity, if you don't define your terms, you'll lead to a misunderstanding of the image of God and the doctrine of sin. So yes, we have spiritually dead, sinful, broken hearts, and we'll get to that, but identity begins with our being made in his image. So in our relationships with our LGBTQ friends and neighbors, the conversation should be more around, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, let me say this way. If it's possible, in your friendship and in your conversations, ask them what they mean about identify. What do you mean by identity? Where do you get that identity? And if pressed, because you will be pressed, and we're going to next week answer the objections of like, is homosexuality the same as it was in the Bible? as today? Now we have monogamous, you know, relationships that are committed, and, and that's very different. You know, what about, we'll, we'll hit all of that next week. But when pressed... is homosexuality a sin? You could say something like this. That's a tough question to answer and here's why. I don't believe who you are is how you are. And I believe you are so much more than just your sexuality. Like you're an incredible person with so much value and dignity. I believe you matter so much to God and you matter so much to me, you have such intrinsic worth. And so if I say yes, as I read and understand God's design for sex, it is sinful behavior to act out those dire, desires. But I would never say who you are is a sin, because I believe you're first made in his image. And I would love to ask you if it's okay, more. more about whether attractions should really be the core of who you are. It's really important that what they hear you saying is that the greatest need they have is what they lost in their relationship with God, not through same-sex attraction, but through unbelief. Does that make sense? So let me just say here, if you experience same-sex attraction, and if that's you, I want you to hear from a pastor or your pastor, I believe your orientation does not make you a second-class citizen and that you matter to God and you matter to me and you matter to us because you're made in his image and you have so much worth, dignity, and purpose. Okay, so if that's who we are and, and, and you know, as much as like I can say in a small sermon, what we're for, let's talk about what happened. Again, I'm, in, I'm inviting us to be equipped into a deeper understanding in how we respond because we believe the Bible is how is the written true word of God, it's inerrant. And so it is where we go to follow the grain of God's reality. So we wanna know what happened. So after God made Adam and Eve in Eden with all its pleasures and goodness, God also told them in Genesis two sixteen. this will be on the screen, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day, you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so the tree serves to them as a reminder that though they're called to rule and have dominion over creation, God still ruled over them. They were still in, they still had authority over them. Moreover, Theologians have said, this tree is a memorial that they could have freely chosen to obey or disobey. And we know the story. What happens if you go to Genesis three, they disobey. And, and sin, brokenness, decay, spiritual death ensues, it fractures everything, beginning with our relationship with God and one another the result of our image bearing is this in Genesis 6:5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually, morally broken, is how evil is to be defined. Ephesians 4:17 says, We are futile-minded. And darken in our understanding. So when this sin came into the world, it infected and affected and broke us spiritually speaking inwardly to turn us to be about ourselves. That our minds are predisposed to suppressing truth Romans one describes. Even our unchosen feelings and thoughts are distorted by sin. Jesus says in Mark 7, for from what? Within, for from within. So again, this is the fall we're talking about. For from within, out of the heart, come, again, morally broken. This is what we're, we're disordered desires, thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness within. in Romans 3 Paul says, both Jew and Greek are under sin. In Psalm 51, David writes, I was brought forth in iniquity. I was born into iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we believe Every aspect of creation has been imprinted by, affected by sin's consequences. We believe all humanity has descended from Adam, who introduced sin into the world, as Paul puts it, in Adam all die. So the fallout is that all humans are guilty of Adam's first sin. All humans possess, everyone possesses the condition of original sin and are in desperate need of salvation, of new spiritual life, of their sins being forgiven before God, all of us need a new representative. Sin changes our overall direction in worship, which is why sin is often seen as living as if God doesn't matter, he's not there, he's unimpressive, and, and look right at me, if God is not in his rightful place, we will invariably put ourselves in his position and we will make it all about us. So let me flush this out a little on the ground with what we do when it comes to sexual sin. And I'll give you two examples and they're, they're rather long but I think they encompass as it pertains to what we do with our sexual desires as our own masters, as effects of the fall. Can I borrow these? So, imagine, so, two examples. Imagine, as the example, a woman lying in her bed early in the morning, fantasizing about sex with someone other than her husband. Consider, again, remember, we're talking about the fall. Consider the godlike posture of her fantasy. She's unhappy with the world that actually exists because she did not create it and does not control it. So the real real world does not do her bidding or give her what she wants. So in her bed on this morning, she seeks to raise herself to the throne of God and in her mind creates a world as she wants it to be and then rules that world as its absolute sovereign. Everything in her self-created world is her possession and everything in her world submits to her pleasure. She's attracted to this world because in it she is creator and Lord. So she sets the rules. She uses what she's created as she wants to use it and for whatever pleasure she seeks. And she'll visit this world again because she finds it way more attractive than the world that really exists. The man she has taken for her pleasure in her fantasy doesn't belong to her and the things she has dreamed of doing with him are not right to do. She's removed God from her universe, taken his throne, possessed what belongs to him, thrown away his rules and written a new set. The whole thing is an outrageous violation of the loving community she was created to have with God, which would then shape every thought, desire, choice, and action in her life. Her problem isn't first that she loves, Herself too much, or fails to love the man she's objectified in her fantasy, the problem is even greater and way more serious than a failure to love God. In her fantasy, even if just for a moment she has killed God, taken his position recreated the world as a garden for her own pleasure and used it as she and she alone wills what she's doing in her bed is not a little thing it's a horrible thing and each time she does it it will make it harder for her to accept the real world where she doesn't have the position of god in the real world she will be more and more tempted to act as the sovereign that she isn't and to attempt to possess and experience what does not belong to her her fantasy is the portal to greater sexual insanity, but she doesn't know it. In fact, she actually, she prides herself on not acting upon the dream she's been able to conjure up. Something beautiful, purifying and protective is missing in her heart. It is something that God intended to be the core motivator of every person he created. And what is it? A willing, joyful, submissive and active rubber meets the road love for him. It's the only thing that will ever produce sexual purity. Sexual purity begins in the heart with a love for God that overwhelms all other loves that battle for the allegiance of the heart. Here's another example. A man is walking home from work and lusting after the woman approaching him on the sidewalk. He slows down his walk to get a longer look and he turns around and watches as she passes. Think with me again about the godlike posture of the man. First, he is treating this moment as if it belongs to him. It's as if he is sovereign and she is on the sidewalk according to his will and for his pleasure. He is owning the moment as his own. This location is his location, there to bring him the pleasure he sees as his right. He's the self-appointed deity of the moment. He thinks of no other God and worships no one but himself. The world has shrunk to the size of his desire and he rules it for his pleasure. He doesn't give a rip at the moment about right or wrong because there is for that moment, no higher authority than himself. He will have what he will have, even if it's only the right to stare at a body parts and imagine having them for his pleasure. But there is more. For that moment, he is stealing God's creation and taking it as his own. He has no right to this woman. She does not actually belong to him in any way, but he takes her with his eyes and his mind. He tries to slow down the moment in order to enjoy his sexual thievery for as long as he can. He's ripped this woman out of the hands of God and claimed her as his own for whatever momentary pleasures he can achieve. She feels his eyes and it's uncomfortable. She wants to get away, but she has to walk by. She feels a bit violated, but it's not the first time. She's walked by this guy and other guys like him before. In that moment, this man is broken, foolish in his understanding. He has denied God's existence. He has set himself up as God. He's robbed God of his creation. He has thrown God off his throne. He has a much deeper problem than his wandering eyes and fickle affections. He has become comfortable Dethroning God and possessing what does not belong to him. And if he continues to do it with his mind, he will begin to do it with his hands. This is the pervasiveness of our sin nature. We've dethroned and continuously dethroned God. Can I just ask you, like, how's it going? Where are you, your own sovereign? Where are you dethroning God? But to be clear, original sin isn't who we are, but rather a pervasive pollution of our essential identity. In other words, it's how we are. It's how we are. Does this mean there's no good in us? No. As image bearers, there's incredible ways God's reflection and common grace come through. However, we believe every human aspect, including sexuality, is in some way, apart from Jesus, blighted Marred by sin, and look right at me, this is the first great equalizer of every human being on planet Earth. We all start there. Paul writes it this way in First Corinthians six: "Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor anyone will inherit the kingdom of God. So in regards to this elephant, Don't worry, we're gonna finish that verse. You're like, what? We'll finish the verse. But in regards to this elephant of sexuality, I should say for most, for most of us in this room, but not all, for most our fallenness will manifest in opposite sex direction and there will be many heterosexual, like sexual moral in the verse sins that come with it. You have a broken sexual orientation. It's a sinful orientation, but for others, it's seen in same-sex attraction. So is having same-sex attraction in itself a sin? No. Can you be a Christian and experience same-sex attraction? Of course. And it does not mean your value or sense of significance is any lower. Jesus himself said in Luke 17, one temptations to sin are sure to come. Any inappropriate desire is a form of temptation that needs to be fought. Temptations are different than sin. Jesus tells us to pray we'd be delivered from temptations, but be forgiven of sin. Temptation itself is not a sin. Why? Because in all our sexuality, our orientation is sinful. We have a sinful orientation. And as we put it last week, good sexual desires are those whose end is biblical marriage, and sinful sexual desires are those who end whose end is outside biblical marriage. Okay. So if that's our identity, as the image of God in the fall, we need a hope. We need a new representative. We, 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 need, we need to be restored in the right image of what we're imaging and what we worship most. Our greatest need. Is, is is redemption. Our greatest need is reconciliation with this God that we were made in his likeness to image forth. I mean, this is it. And from Genesis three to Revelation, this is your story. This is our reality. We don't live in our own world for our own glory. We live in God's world and he has come for his glory in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus rose from death, when he came out of the grave, when that new life and new spiritual birth happened, it shook the entire world and it began to make us alive, to God and dead to this old sinful orientation and we have this new evidence in us by the power of the Holy Spirit who's in you he's indwelling you he's expressing the first fruits of his resurrection and his transforming character Okay, you are now being this is the first sermon we preached on September 1st you are now being remade in the image of his son every activity, every day God himself is doing this work in you to make you more like Jesus. Now, because of Christ, death for you, resurrection for you, you have a new risen identity. You have a new redemptive identity. You are now a child of God, 1 John says. You're now accepted. You're now in Christ. Galatians 2 says you've been crucified with Christ. Listen to what Paul says at the end of our verse we just read nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were made right, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. This is your new identity. This is who we are. We choose to live not by our attractions, but by who Christ says we are. What Christ has done done in us. Our new identity is Christ likeness, and it's full of meaning. Just you know, it's 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 what your friends were made for. It's what will be your happiest end. You will find a, the most fulfilled life living out this identity, living from this love. This is the greatest thing. All God's commands will not be arbitrary when you have this identity, when you have his heart. This is where true freedom and in finding your unique place in the tapestry of God's story is found. You were washed, right? This is exciting. We should just clap right now. Woo, this is so good. Yes, death has been defeated. I love, love how Rachel, um, I can't say her last name. Jankovic says this, she says, Jesus Christ came to this earth, struggled, suffered, and died so that you might die. That's amazing. Jesus Christ died so that you might die and he lives so that you might live. Your life in Christ is what happens after your death in him. There will be no resolution to these struggles in your life if you do not willingly give your self-fashioned identity to Christ that it might die. It will die anyway, so let it be in him. And when you live, it will be in him too. Friends, there is no hope for you that is not Jesus. You can't try to keep living the life that you should have died in Christ. That sentence is huge. You can't try to keep living the life that you should have died in Christ. You can't arrange all your little ideas about yourself in some compatible way with your idea of Christ. Let him have it all. What remains after that death is only life. You are no longer the author of your own identities. That's totally free but rather you live in the author and he lives in you. Jesus is our life. It's exactly what Paul says. Paul says, Christ who is your life. Paul says that Christ died so that you would no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and was raised. This is the greatest identity. This is is the most exciting future. This will go into eternity. Your Christ-like identity will last forever. Being united to Christ is the greatest relationship you were made to fill your heart with. I would encourage you, do not identify with your romantic desires that are a result of the fall. Those desires are not neutral or redeemable. But arise from your old sin nature. So, the question I want to ask us as we go into a time of just worshiping it more and celebrating communion, and so, Ben, you can come up now. I want to ask us as we come to communion this question Where are you still hiding? And this is a question that, who cares if I'm asking this? But if God's asking you right now, listen to him. You hide, your, you hide when you tell yourself you're okay. You hide when you minimize your struggle. You hide when you lie to others. You hide when you, when you give you know, nebulous non-answers to people who are trying to help you. You hide when you try to cover up your struggle by making yourself look more spiritual than you are. You hide when you convince yourself that you can do alone what you will only ever do with the help of God. As one put it, the cross of Jesus Christ welcomes you out of hiding. Because on the cross, Jesus endured your punishment. He carried your guilt. He for your shame, and He endured your rejection, and He did this all so that you wouldn't have to hide from God. Like that really happened. Like, don't take communion today if this is just routine for you. To only take it if you believe. I'm washed. I'm washed. That really happened for me. And some of us will sit there after I say that sentence and go, then I'm not going to take it. But in this moment, don't let your feelings... Rule what really happened in history with your Savior. Some of you are going to have to take communion by faith today. Some of you are going to have to come and go, I don't feel this, but I'm done hiding. And here's how I'm hiding Satan's biggest weapon in your soul is isolation. His biggest weapon is to tell you you're all alone. If you are exposed, you will not be loved. The cross of Christ welcomes you out of hiding. Where are you hiding? We're all creating God's image. We are all broken and we're all being renewed. And I want you to remember, you're his church. You're, you're, his physicians. You're his image bearers. You're his, you reflect the doctor. Which means because you're in this grand story and you've been welcomed into it and he's for transforming you into the image of a son to help someone out with a specific sin struggle that you don't have doesn't disqualify you from helping them. You don't have to have that struggle before you can lead and share and pray and be Jesus and share his love and point them to the love found in whose they are. And that's, you have to, that's your message. This is whose you are. This is what I believe you're for. This is what I believe happened And this is what I believe Jesus can restore in your life.